This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Today, I have Dr. Sandeep Banerjee with me. He is Associate Professor at McGill University in Canada. He joins me today to talk about his book, Space, Utopia, and Decolonization, Literary Prefigurations of the Postcolony, published with Rutledge. Uh, As always, I'd like to begin with the beginning, Dr. Banerjee. How did this book come to be? What is the genesis of this book? Thank you, Gargi, for having this conversation with me. Um, So a version of this book began as a PhD dissertation. The book looks uh, very different from where I started out. Uh, The book began as in my interest in the spatial humanities, I guess, the production of space uh, and and how decolonization was also a space-making process. And uh, my dissertation looked at, you know, how landscapes, landscape representations were used to uh, think about the post-colony of India, right? So before uh, before the the nation, as it were, gets congealed under particularly Gandhian nationalism. So this that idea was uh, uh, thoroughly renovated and uh, revised in the book, where I progressively got more interested in the concept of utopia and about thinking about decolonization as an actualization of utopian thought, utopian um, politics, and in some ways a failed utopianism. So it was an actualization and a failed actualization. So that tension is what I've tried to think about. Um, And in this book, I've also tried to capture this idea that not all anti-colonialisms are the same. There are different kinds of anti-colonialisms. And, uh, and I've tried to think that with the category of space. Um, and uh, I mean, before we go to the second question, which is very linked to here, why, um, why at all is space making uh, an important part of decolonization process? What do we understand by that? So when I think of space, I'm thinking about theorizations of space that come to us particularly from uh, the discipline of geography, human geographers, cultural geographers, they've thought about space in a specific way. 
I'm also thinking about the work of Ori Lefebvre and his production of space, uh, but also uh, uh, Raymond Williams, Raymond Williams' Country in the City, which gives us a sense of what uh, the changing conceptions of country and city, uh, how they play out in the context of British literature and the global political economy. So those were the frameworks I had in mind. And I also wanted to engage with this idea that space is not just a backdrop or a container, but a very much a active aspect of um, the lives we lead. And it becomes particularly uh, crucial to think about decolonization because, uh, you know, like Fanon very famously told us that the, the colonial project was a world divided into compartments. Now, this also, uh, you know, because of colonial capitalist modernity, the world gets produced in a certain way. We have core areas, uh, the metropolitan areas and the peripheral or the colonial areas. And that world system gets revised and into what we have now, the modern uh, world system of a series of nation states. Now, this transformation is a social transformation, is an economic transformation, is a political transformation, but it is also very much a spatial transformation. So it's kind of the remaking of the space we inhabit. So that's really what uh, kind of underwrites my book project. Yeah. And I'm again trying to unpack the title, the very heavy title of, of your book is is uh, I found it very interesting that you use the notion of utopia because I mean in Greek it means no place and um, this is interesting to talk about when we talk about from the side of the decolonization process because it is usually talked in relation to the colonization project, for example, for, for the white settler imagination, the Americas and, and, this, and the Asian spaces, they were utopias in the sense they didn't exist till they came there and made something wonderful out of it. So what what is the interest of talking utopia from the decolonization or the post-colonial perspective? So uh, I think of utopia as an ideal. Right, a desire to transform the world into a better, more just place. Right. Obviously, this is not the white uh, settler colonial notion of utopia, but here I'm drawing on theorizations of utopia by uh, figures like Ernst Bloch, Ruth Levitas, and others. Right. Utopia teaches us, or at least educates our desire for a better way of being and living. Now, this I've tried to think in sort of concrete historical terms. Decolonization was a utopian desire for a better way of being and living and a better space, quite literally, like whether it's India, whether it's the Africa, Caribbean uh, countries or, or Ireland, uh, the, the, colon, uh, the colonized actually wanted a more egalitarian world. So they wanted a more egalitarian space. So this is very much linked to uh, to that idea. Now, utopia, as you said, is no place, but it's a kind of pun, I think, as uh, it's a pun that combines uh, the Greek word for utopos, good place, and utopos, no place. So that's that's where the, the pun is. And uh, for me, as, as you will see in the book, I've insisted on using the word post-colony rather than thinking about the Indian nation. So what I'm, what I'm thinking about is simply the imagination of a space that is yet to come. What does the world, what would the world look like? What would British India look like? Or in specific cases, what would Bengal look like in the aftermath of colonization once we've 
we've transcended colonization. So that project is what I've tried to uh, illuminate. At the same time, I've also uh, brought in British perspectives to kind of uh, give a sense of a version of what you mentioned, colonial utopia. The co for, the, for the colonizer, India is a certain kind of utopia, or they want to make it, remake it in their own image. And there's a contestation between two projects, if you will, of space making here. And that's, that's what I'm trying to get at in my book. Yeah, and parallel to this is also this uh, struggle between post-colonialism and decolonialism that, you know, I mean, for example, that, uh, from South Asia, you would, researchers would insist on post-colonialism. And for example, that would be different, for example, in the terms than uh, the, the Latin America. Because, because of the categories of indigenous and, 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 and a lot of ways in which we can talk about the, the, what comes after the white colony. Um, do you also see this as, as a struggle when you're reading Tagore or uh, Anandmat or these things, or do you think this is not something in book deals? Uh, it, my book doesn't deal with it, but in the end, uh, because it's looking at one specific historical moment, it's largely focused on uh, the 19th century. And, and like it, uh, the last text I take up is Tagore's memoir, which is published in the 1940s. Uh, but it's basically a late, mid, late 19th century to an early 20th century uh, book. That's, that's the historical expanse it deals with. But right at the end, I actually make this point about decolonization being a process. Right? We, we often think of decolonization as an event. You know, it's a handover of political power, the dismantling of the empires. Uh, rather than that, we should think of uh, decolonization very much as a process, which is about uh, transforming the political realm, but also you know, reinvigorating the economic relations and the, and the cultural sphere, which would lead to what uh, Gugi famously talks about as the decolonization of the mind. And uh, in that, it's uh, 47 in the case of India is just one moment of a longer process. And I also hint at the fact that this utopianism of decolonization gets arrested. This is not something I elaborate on, but in the in the last chapter, uh, I try to point out that it gets uh, kind of arrested in the post-colonial moment. And here I'm using post-colonial simply as a historical marker. Yeah. Um, and uh, for those of people like me who are not very familiar with uh, the literary cartography, there is a notion that you use uh, not many times, which is spatial desire. I mean, I tried to do a small Google search, but I couldn't get my head around it. Can you define spatial desire for future readers? So let's, um, so one thing that I've tried to do is think about, as I said, utopia in spatial terms. Utopia, uh, Ruth Levitas, Arons Block will talk about as this desire for a better way of being and living, right? But this desire for a better way of being or living is located very much in history, in space, right? In a, in a time-space coordinate. So I've tried to spatialize this idea and say that uh, to think of a better way of being and living is also to think about a better space, right? So, so that's one uh, part of the answer. The second part is taking on this idea that literature 
produces, if you will, uh, possible worlds, right? Uh, we've seen this in Philip Sidney's idea of nat uh, nature's world is uh, made of bronze and literature produces a golden world. All the way uh, much later in Edward Said, we have this idea of the imagined geography. This is what he uh, uses in, in uh, Orientalism, his book. So all of this, uh, and, and imagined geographies actually gives a kind of spatial idea. He's, Said is interested in a specific understanding of imagined geographies. Here I'm trying to think about spatial desire as a way in which uh, literature, literary texts, literary and cultural texts produce uh, ideas about uh, space, about uh, produce specific imagined geographies and how these geographies how these geographies, uh, as it were, jostle in the literary field and compete with each other. Uh, so that's that's what I mean by spatial desire, something uh, that gives a spatial anchor to the idea of utopian desire. Okay. Um, and um, uh, you're saying also that the aim of this book is, and I'm quoting here, is to draw out the placemaking space and the pedagogic functions of the colonial and anti-colonial texts. But you're not really talking about the texts which are written for teaching, are you? No. So uh, I am thinking here about, you know, ideas like in Schiller, uh, the, aesthetic, the idea of the aesthetic education. What does literature do? It gives us an aesthetic education. It tells us how to be, tells us, you know, ways of being. That's what it gives us. So that's that's what I mean by the pedagogic function. You know, I'm, I'm thinking here, in some ways, in well, what we find in the traditional humanities, literature teaches, literature moves, literature, you know, delights. And, and that's the pedagogic uh, function that I have in mind, prodesse, dilectare, uh, movere. Uh, so, and, and it teaches us about space. So for instance, it teaches us by uh, uh, sometimes overtly, as you said, teaching texts, but sometimes not, just by allusions, by hints. This is what the place would be like. This is what uh, you know community would look like. Uh, so that's that's what I mean by the pedagogic function of the text, and it does it through aesthetics. It does it through uh, giving by you know delighting us in, in giving us you know uh, enjoyment. Uh, can you give any concrete example of, of this? So, for instance, I, I um, use this poem by Tagore, which uh, in Bengali is called Chitto Jitha It's uh, it's uh, most Indians know it as where the mind is without fear and the head held high, etc. I mean, just recently Martin Sheen uh, recited the English translation at a climate action protest. So, it's for instance that poem gives you a sense of what India should be like, ought to be like, right? It tells you, you know, the, whether uh, head is held high, the knowledge is free, you know, and uh, um, human, human life is not constrained by the dreary habits of custom, right? So it, it gives us a possible vision of a future and a vision of a possible future at the same time. So, and, and it's not actually trying to teach us anything in, the, in an explicit sense. It's, it's structured as a prayer. Like this is let this be the paradise in which India may arise. So, so that's that's a I think a very concrete example, a very hopeful example in my mind of uh, the image of a post-colony, the utopian image of a post-colony. Yeah, 
and um, in, in the chapters that follow you comparing Tagore with Kipling and you are uh, you're you're very reading closely in the way the city is imagined or even claimed by these two writers um, and you say how how different this is and how does this even this imagination of a space can can reflect the colonization process or can it Oh, it does very certainly. So, um, so if you look at the chapter that I have on Calcutta, where I read Calcutta as a kind of microcosm of the larger post-colony, there are two moments. One, I bring um, Mirza Ghalib, um, James Atkinson, and Bhavani Charan Bandhavadai together. Three perspectives. So, Ghalib has come to Calcutta. He is uh, he's actually amazed by by this city, and he thinks of it in in this kind of um, paradisal terms. And he's in fact uh, reworking the Sharashob uh, to bring in Calcutta uh, there. And um, this is contrasted with James Atkinson's you know city of palaces idea, which is also a poem where Calcutta is very much the second city of empire and he's talking about how wonderful this is, right? And you see at a, his, this is happening at a specific historical moment. Ghalib is very much looking at it in amazement. He's thinking about it in terms of wonder. Um, for James Atkinson, it's a great space because it is, the, it is a little London, as he calls it. A city of palaces and Bhavanijar and Bandavad, they doesn't like it. He just there is thinking about how you know the Bengali language is getting corrupted, how um, you know the money flows here like you know uh, currents. So he has a very it comes from a conservative perspective, but nevertheless you get three perspectives on the city, which are very much uh, uh, structured by the colonial moment. At a later moment, when you uh, when one comes uh, to Kipling, who's writing about Calcutta in the 1880s, Calcutta has gone from a city of palaces in the British imagination to this city of filth and death and poverty and all the rest of it. So he talks about it as the city of uh, dreadful night, you know, uh, uh, and which stinks. It's it's as he calls it. It's uh, it stinks of the clammy odor of blue slime that has uh, rotted twice over. And on the other hand, uh, Tagore in the 40s in his memoir is talking about uh, the city he grew up in. So Tagore was born in 1860s, 1861. So 1870s, 1880s, is, he's, he's a young, young man in the cities and he's writing about his childhood. And you see there is, uh, it has very much become part of, um, uh, it's, it's gone from being a colonial city to an Indian city. And in the middle, there's Bolana Chandar, who's talking about how Calcutta is this great city compared to the dying city of Delhi. So you again, get three perspectives. So one of the things that I've tried to do is show how colonialism, which is a, a complex set of you know, political economic processes, they produce perspectives that are complex and divergent. So I've tried to, as, it, as, I, as I use the word, constellate these texts to give us a kind of a constellation of imaginations on, on, um, on space, specific spatial types, if you will. Yeah. And, and something very uh, significant in this book is the analysis of the patriotic lyric. And um, I would like to start really from the start is 
how is patriotic lyric in your analysis different from other genres like like poetry or story or novel so so uh, i think some literary genres whether in the poetic realm or in the prosaic realm are much more deeply spatial and i think the patriotic lyric stands out from other lyrical genres by virtue of being much more invested in space. Uh, for instance, in the prosaic realm, the travelogue would be something like that, which is very obviously about space. And I've tried to uh, think about this genre, the patriotic lyric, and you know, we often hear about the novel being a global genre of modernity and so on and so forth. Uh, I've tried to argue that so is the patriotic lyric. You have this in all contexts and uh, some Patriotic lyrics are, in a sense, first amongst equals, and they become national anthems and national songs and those kinds of things. And so uh, what I've tried to do is try to uh, unearth what was the spatial imagination of patriotic lyrics. So I look at uh, uh, Rule Britannia. So I begin with Rule Britannia. I look at also uh, Reginald Heber's um, sort of, it's a, it's a Christian hymn, but it's kind of deeply inflected, both of these deeply inflected by a kind of colonial imagination. And then uh, when we come to India, you have uh, Bunkim Chandra Chattopadhyay's Bande Mataram, which is, of course, the first stanza is the national song of India, and Rabindranath's Janagana um, Mano, uh, which is the national anthem. And I've tried to look at not just the bits the Indian public sings, but the entire song, uh, and uh, try to see that what was the way that these uh, lyrics imagine um, the post-colony. And uh, I've argued that they are divergent. And the other, other thing about patriotic lyrics, uh, I should say two things. One is that they're deeply performative. They are lyrics in the traditional and you know, uh, normative sense of the word. They are sung. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore they're deeply performative in, in they actually, uh, make you participate in the processes uh, in a bodily way, right? And when it becomes a national anthem, you're supposed to stand up and all the rest of it. So, um, so that's one. And it also gives us a kind of an, a view of how the older form of literature, orature, like oral literature, kind of kind of lives on in um, in the in the moment of the literary when uh, literatures become less, or rather the uh, um, the the literary or cultural texts become less performative and um, are meant largely to be read. I guess Bollywood songs would be another great example, not of the patriotic lyric, but a way in which we have a performative. Uh, uh, life of uh, the lyric in our contemporary moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage 
all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you say they're very performative because this is all that has been going on in India since BJP came. I mean, it, with particular, I mean, even with Vande Masam, there is a particular performance to it that you have to perform, stand up and say, this is, you know, this is being Indian as of. Um, but why do they, why are they so significant for modernity? Well, uh, they're significant because I think they signal a certain spatialization of our identity, right? Uh, so you, you talked about India, uh, you know, no one cared before modernity about territorial identity. Identity was uh, linked to community uh, or, uh, you know, the, the local places that you belong to. So, so the world was fundamentally, uh, as Polanzas, another uh, thinker told us, it was fundamentally open, right? You could go from one place and settle in somewhere. I mean, obviously there were, there were you know, hoops to cross, but it was just completely fine for you know, William of Orange of Netherlands to be uh, established as the emperor of um, England. No one asked him whether you know, uh, you're, you're English. That is what changes in uh, modernity. Uh, you have a pre-modern idea of the notion, uh, sorry, nation, and that gets codified in a sense in terms of the nation state, which is the territorial extent of the state. So there's a fundamental shift in the idea of nation and with it, the idea of belonging. And I think patriotic lyrics, and by this, I mean, obviously the modern ones uh, give us a sense of this, that, you know, what does it mean to belong? How does one belong in, in spaces? How does the literary world negotiate uh, this uh, the trappings of identity? And it, this is exactly what we see in India in the contemporary moment, because this question of who is Indian uh, becomes uh, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a crucial issue, for want of a better word. Yeah, yeah. Um... I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if you're comfortable talking about this, but you are saying that uh, Jan Ganman of Tagore and uh, Vande Matram, Vande Matram uh, of Tagore of are divergent in their imagination of space. I mean, if you could walk us through how this difference uh, plays out in the letter. Okay, so, uh, so the first thing about uh, Vande Matram is that it's written at a time where there's, where Bonkim has no conception of India. He's writing about Bengal. Uh, and it is about Bengal. Now, uh, if you read the entire poem, uh, as I have tried to show, the poem is wonderfully utopian because it's talking about, you know, the, the opening lines that we say, Shujalang, uh, Shufalang, Malaj, Ashitalang. Right. It's kind of a land where there's standing crops. It's, you know, it's verdant with standing crops, etc. Now, if you see when it's being written, it's being written at the height of uh, sort of famine and uh, death in Bengal. And, um, you know, the famine start in India from the 1770s. It's the first uh, great famine, which kills off about 30% of the population of Bengal. And uh, it 
runs right through, you know, ending in again the last great famine, which was in Bengal, 43 to 45, which killed about 4 million people. So, uh, so at one hand, Bonkim is performing a wonderfully utopian task. You see a wonderfully utopian spatial desire in Vande Matram, which transforms this land of death and distress into this you know, green nurturing land. But at the same time, it uh, insists on using basically the Hindu conceptual vocabulary for imagining uh, what in Bengal is. And this is kind of, the, since it was popularized as a part of the novel Anandamot, Anandamot is very clearly uh, imagining Bengal as a Hindu space. It is, uh, it starts off as, a, as wanting to critique uh, colonial rule and uh, British, uh, I beg your pardon, uh, the rule of the Bengal in Bengal Nawabs. But by the end of the novel, it becomes a critique of Muslim rule in Bengal, where there is a kind of acceptance of colonial rule. So that's a very specific kind of imagination. And by the 1870s, it was known that Muslims were the majority population in Bengal because of the censuses. So essentially what you see is uh, an evacuation of the majority community from this imagination. On the other hand, if you go to uh, Tagore, Tagore, uh, you know, the, the first stanza which we sing as a national anthem is invested in the physical, political uh, geography. But the second stanza, which again, it's not sung very often recently, TM Krishna sung it, uh, in, uh, which is uh, wonderful uh, to listen to. He's talking about, you know, how the deity, Bhagavidata, the deity which governs India, is a is a kind uh, is a kind of deity that welcomes all communities uh, into into this country, and um, so he's, he actually kind of uses in some ways the colonial enumerative modality to actually list out the various uh, communities, uh, the religious communities, and thinks about how they come together to basically build India, make it into an Indian community. It's a very different imagination from Bunkim's. And I think that's what I've tried to show. Uh, and uh, your chapter about patriotic lyric ends by saying that spirituality is part of both the Indian imagination, the South Asian imagination, and also the British imagination, uh, which, which is in contrast to previous research, which has called spirituality as part of the anti-colonial movement only. What does this entail to say their part, spirituality is part of both of them? See, uh, you know, it's, there is this idea that, uh, you find this in, in uh, people like Partho Chatterjee, for instance, that, you know, there's the spiritual domain and the material domain and the material domain is the part of the West, etc. Now, the spiritual domain, the way uh, Partha Chatterjee talks about it, comes is the site of nation making. That's pretty much uh, what the argument uh, goes. Uh, and I think he's trying to make a distinction between the state and the nation here. Uh, but if you if you look at other other parts of the world, both metropolitan and colonial, you see uh, spiritual is very much an important resource for trying to lead a better life. Uh, so you have, for instance, in Latin America, you have liberation theology, 
where which combines Christianity with Marxism for social justice. You find this in the work and the writings of um, 17th century English uh, sects like the Ranters, the Quakers, the Muggletonian and so on and so forth, and uh, Diggers. And they are very much talking about social justice in Christian terms. So for instance, this very famous phrase when Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman, you know, that there was no property relations in paradise, so there should be property relations in England. And uh, these are very much um, part of a scholarly, scholarly work, like the work of, for instance, Christopher Hill of E.P. Thompson. And I think it, there's almost a kind of auto-orientalism in some of these scholars when they kind of attribute spiritualism or spirituality only to uh, the so-called East. And, and that's something I've tried to push back against. You know, and to think about religion, not just as the opiate of the masses, which is often how you know, Marx's very long uh, expression is condensed to religion is the opiate of the masses. But in that same line, is uh, Marx is talking about religion as the sire of the oppressed, the heart in a heartless world. And that's what I'm trying to get at here. And uh, since we're uh, almost at the end of the podcast, um, what do you hope the readers take from the book? What do you hope changes in scholarship? I uh, methodologically, I've tried to do two things. One is to break uh, what I hope is methodological nationalism. Right? It's not obvious or it's not uh, evident very much that we read British texts, English texts written by Britishers in conjunction with you know, English texts written by Indians or, you know, a text by ver other vernacular writers. In my case, I've tried to talk about colonial texts written in English, um, texts written by British Indians, both in English and, and uh, Bengali. And I hope this would uh, give people a sort of a methodological handle on on this, you know, it's just a new way of doing literary studies. That's that's a one. And uh, second, I've also tried to think about decolonization by thinking about decolonization as this kind of utopian horizon, right? Which and which I've talked about as a post-colony rather than Indian nation. Uh, I also want to move away, or hope people will read the uh, book and get this idea that. Um, most of the work that deals with uh, anti-colonialism or, or what have you in the Indian context, they often assume a presentist charge, even whether they want to or not. Sort of India becomes the starting point of looking at uh, the colonial process. So, uh, and, and that's something I've tried to push back against a little, I hope. Yeah. And uh, since this book was published now um, two, three years ago, is it a good time to ask about your future projects? <laughs> sure. I am, uh, I've gone back to the concept of landscape and I'm now working on a project on the colonial Himalaya, sort of the way in the, the colonial Himalaya was in a sense remade according to certain ideas, you know, sort of, so I'm trying to map the landscaping of the Himalaya in, in that sense. Um, you know, people trying to uh, 
at some level understand this as a space of the unknown and map it, the, the British and uh, Indians alongside. Uh, you know, so that contested nature through which uh, the Himalaya come to be seen, not just as a space of unknown that becomes known, but also as a space of intrigue because of you know um, uh, the spying missions that British India sends to Tibet um, as a space of thrill. They go climbing mountains and you know discover things as a place where you encounter nature in its kind of wilderness, everything from yaks and tigers to yetis uh, to uh, nature controlled and produced. So, you know, tea plantations, tea plantations, those kinds of things. So basically thinking about the Himalaya as a series of tropes that are, that are uh, produced and through which we continue to make sense of the Himalaya, like it's a land of gods. This is where the gods dwell. This is where, or this is where, you know, a certain kind of humans dwell, like uh, the hill station and so on and so forth. So yeah, that's that's what I'm working on now. And hopefully we'll have something to talk about. Yeah. Well, I hope to read more of your work and I wish you the best for your future projects. Thank you. Thank you.